Good morning uh, and Happy New Year. Uh, as Carson said, my name is Timothy, one of the pastors here at Christ Central, and excited to be with you. Hope you all had a wonderful break, Christmas break, and enjoyed bringing in the new year last night. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to show your hands if you saw the ball drop, but glad that we're here together um, and excited to worship together with you today. In terms of where we're headed this new year, uh, next week we'll be kicking off a new sermon series uh, on the life of Jacob. Uh, in, pre in preparation for that new series, we're going to take a moment this morning to do a deeper dive into our vision verse that we presented back in September for this year, uh, Psalm 85, 6. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? And our hope this year is to anchor ourselves in that verse, and so it seems fitting that we would spend a Sunday to unpack that in its context a little more fully. So we're going to be doing that today, looking at the whole psalm, Psalm 85, uh, so that we can have a greater understanding of this truth and, and hopefully, Lord willing, apply it more fully to our lives and to this community. Uh, what's interesting about this psalm, as I was studying these past couple of weeks, I learned that one of the primary places that this psalm was used was as a part of the Jewish uh, New Year's celebration. Uh, kind of cool that uh, the nation of Israel would use this song to help realign their hearts at the beginning of a new year. And so I, I had no idea of that when we selected this text for this day, but uh, God knows, and maybe he's up to something uh, this morning. But I do want to invite you now, if you're able to stand as we read God's word. This is Psalm 85. And like ancient Israel, we're reading it on New Year's Day. This is God's word. And I do, sorry, I do want to make a note that if you're, we normally read in the SV, um, the translation that we're going to read is slightly different. So if you want to follow along on the screen, it'll be a little different than what's in your Bibles. We'll talk about that in a minute, but this is God's word, Psalm 85. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You turned back the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Turn us back again, O God of our salvation. And put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not turn us back again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good. And our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. The prophet Isaiah says, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Would you pray with me? 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we believe your word is true. We ask that you would now speak to us this morning through your word. Father, speak to our hearts, speak to our minds. God, I pray that each of us would be transformed as we encounter you, the living God, this morning. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I want to begin this morning with a bold statement that may surprise some of you, and that is that I believe that one of the main reasons why the church is not seeing a whole lot of growth in America these days is that Christians don't always tell the truth. That's right. We Christians, especially in America, have gotten very comfortable being dishonest, in particular, dishonest about what it's like to be a Christian. Here's what I mean. How many of you have heard it said that if you believe in Jesus, that all your troubles will go away? That if you just become a Christian, that your life will be full of unceasing joy? Has anyone ever heard Christianity pitched that way? It's bad enough to say that to an adult, but even worse, we Christians often tell this same lie to our children. How many of you grew up with this song? I'm in, right out, right up, right down, right happy all the time. Since Jesus Christ came in and cleansed my heart of sin, I'm in, right out, right up, right out, down, right happy all the time. That's the only time I will ever sing from the pulpit. Who, who grew up, and I'm sorry if that song is stuck in your head, but the problem with that song, if you've never heard it before, it will now stick with you, is that it's just not true. It's absolutely not true. Nowhere in Scripture does it promise that faith in Christ will produce happiness all the time. In fact, the book of Psalms, this, this song book, is evidence of the exact opposite. It's a book of sad songs, very sad songs, some of them, written by some very unhappy people. Our text this morning in particular is a sad song written by an unhappy person on behalf of an unhappy group of people. And at the heart of their unhappiness is the fact that these people have grown distant from God. And as a result, they've lost the joy of their salvation. I wonder how many of us can relate to that this morning. How many of you feel really distant from God right now? Maybe you can look back on when your salvation was a sweet gift to you, a precious treasure, a a pearl of great price. But unfortunately, these days, the treasure doesn't feel near as precious as it used to. And I want to encourage you, if you feel that way this morning, you're not alone. Countless Christians throughout history have written about it, sung about it, talked about, about losing that joy that that was once so easily experienced when we were in close connection with the Lord. Even the great John Wesley, the father of Methodism, once said, where is the joy that I knew when I first saw the Lord? If that's where you're at, this psalm is for you. Now, I'm sure there's probably others here today who are not in that place. You have no idea what I'm talking about. Right now, you feel so close to God, and there's so much joy in this relationship with him. And I don't want to be too much of a Debbie Downer, but I need to say to you, just wait. 
The darkness will come. It does for everyone. There will be seasons where your relationship with Christ feels bland and meaningless. And that's because the Christian life, as evidenced throughout Scripture, it ebbs and flows. It has wonderful mountaintops and deep, dark valleys low. And anyone who tells you otherwise is either lying or they're delusional. But the good news is that for those of us who are right now in the valley, who are feeling distant from God, that God has given us psalms like this, songs to sing when we feel distant from him, when we've lost the joy of our salvation. And what this psalm reveals is a way out of the valley, a way to get unstuck. And that way out involves three things. It involves crying out, looking back, and looking forward. Those are our three points this morning. Cry out, look back, and look forward. Let's begin with crying out. Now, it's really hard to ask for help, isn't it? Because asking for help requires that we admit that we don't have what it takes, that we're not strong enough, that we're not good enough, that we're not tough enough to do it on our own. My youngest daughter, she hates asking for help. Her go-to phrase is, I got this, Daddy. I got it. I can do it. And sometimes it's, it's just laughable to see what she thinks she can do. Amazon will drop, drop off a 50-pound bag of dog food, and there she goes, I got this, Daddy. And I wish I could say that I have no idea where she got this from, but the truth is she got it honest. I was in college. I drove a pickup truck with some big tires on it, which meant that I knew everything there was to know about off-roading. <laughs> One night, I was with some friends, and we were riding through the woods, typical Alabama Saturday night. <laughs> I, that's not funny. That's true. That's, that wasn't the truth. <laughs> friend of mine's driving his truck, and we rolled up to this big old mud hole. I can tell my friend is nervous, and he turns to me, and he says, I think you got this one, T-Bone, which is what they, what they called me. With a nickname like that, I did not deserve to be behind the wheel, but we traded seats. I took over, and everything was going fine. Then we had this big thud, and the truck stopped moving. Wheels are spinning. We're not going anywhere. Turns out there was a large stump in the middle of this mud hole, and I had put the truck right on top of the stump so that all four tires were off the ground. And the result of this stellar driving performance was that the man whose land we were trespassing on had to bring his tractor to come get us unstuck. That's, that's really stuck. And the truth is I had no idea what I was doing. I was just like my five-year-old, naively and foolishly declaring, I got this. I don't need any help. And it was my pride that got us into a huge mess. The point I'm trying to make is that in situations such as this, the only way for the, us to get unstuck is to first and foremost realize that we can't unstick ourselves. The author of, of Psalm 85, he has found himself in a situation such as this. There's a lot of debate on what the exact circumstances were, but there's no question that, that Israel is in a bad, bad place. Verse 5 tells us how they got there. It says, the people cry, God, will you be angry with us forever? 
Now, there's, there's one thing that throughout the scriptures always invokes God's anger and causes him at times to turn away from his people. And that's when God's people say, we got this. We don't need you, God. And that's what has happened in Psalm 85. God's people have turned their back on God and, and pridefully declared their lack of need for him. And as a result, they've gotten in a huge mess. Brothers and sisters, how stuck are you this morning? It's a really important question because if, if you believe you're only a little bit stuck, you're in danger of thinking that you can unstick yourself. And good luck with that. But when we come to realize that we are really stuck, the only choice that we have is to cry out for help, which is what God is waiting on. What we see time and time again in Scripture is that our God waits on us to recognize our need. He waits on us to cry out to him. And as an aside, how cool is that? That your God is bending down with his hand over his ear, waiting for you to cry out to him. So eager to intervene in your life. That's the character of our God that we see over and over again in the scriptures. Now, I know some of you are realizing, I know that I need help. I know that I should cry out, but, but what am I to say? What is the substance of the cry. Look again at the text as mentioned in the beginning, the, the text in the bulletin is a little different than the ESV. And because the, the ESV, it, it misses a little nuance of the translation. And that is there's a key word that's repeated over and over again. And, and, and the Hebrew writers do this to help emphasize the main point of the text. And the, the key word is the word shuv. And it, it shows up five different times in eight verses. And it means to turn back to turn back from a point of departure. That's the essence, that's the meat, that's the heart of this cry, turning back. Now look at closely who's turning and who's being turned. I think that's really important. Verse four, it says, the psalmist cries, turn us back, O God, of our salvation. And then again in verse six, God, will you not turn us back again? How many of you have got some New Year's resolutions already thought out? Evan mentioned that earlier. I loved a couple weeks ago when Emilio talked about how bad he is at fulfilling his New Year's resolutions. And the problem is there's an innate problem with a New Year's resolution. And the problem is that to fulfill that resolution, there has to be something that comes from within. The resolution is an attempt to, to mine my inner self and find something inside of me that can help make me into a better person. It's like a pep talk to yourself. It's like my five-year-old says, but to herself, I got this. I'm going to be awesome this year. You just wait and see. Which is the exact opposite of the psalmist's cry. The psalmist doesn't say, don't you worry, God. I know last year was rough, but, but this year we got it, God. We got this. We're going to turn ourselves around, and, and, and you're going to love it, God. Just you wait. God would have laughed at something like that because the point of Psalm 85 is that the power is not inside of you. 
you're really stuck in that mud hole and you can't get yourself unstuck. You need someone outside of the mess to rescue you, which is the essence of the prayer that's here in verse 4 and 6. God, I don't need to turn myself back. I need you to turn me back. Why? So that, verse 6, that we can rejoice in him again. God, turn me back because I know that, that in you the joy is found. Not happy, clappy, pretend joy, but joy that exists in the face of great trials. Joy that exists alongside great suffering. That's the cry that comes from being really stuck. God, turn me back to you. Which brings us to our second point, the the problem for many of us is we, we can't even find the strength to cry out. We know what we're supposed to say, but we can't get the words out. Maybe because uh, you've cried out before and no one answered. Or maybe because your situation just seems too hopeless. Not even God could help me get out of this mess. Thankfully, the text not only encourages you to cry out, but also gives you the fuel that empowers us to, to bring that cry to the surface, the fuel that, that is found in looking back and looking forward. Let's look first at this idea of looking back. Look again at what the text says. Verses 1 through 3, the psalmist is looking back on, on better days. But what is it that the psalmist looks back upon that was so wonderful? One of my favorite songs got to be Glory Days by Bruce Springsteen. Heard it before, I'm sure, or if not, you will after church. Uh, he says, he, Springsteen says, I had a friend who was a big, I'm not going to sing this one. Uh, I'm going to read it. Uh, I had a friend who was a big baseball player back in high school. He could throw that speed ball by you, make you look like a fool boy. Saw him the other night at the roadside bar. I was walking in, he was walking out. We went back inside, sat down, had a few drinks, but all we kept talking about was glory days. The message of the song is that when times are rough, we can always look back on when circumstances were good, and, and then you'll feel better. Uh, and it may be surprising to you, but Bruce is kind of on to something. When, when times are rough, we, we do need to. God does want us to look back, but the, the important thing is what do we look back upon Springsteen is arguing that you should look back on glory days, back when you were the star baseball player or the prom queen, a time when you tasted the American dream or fame and popularity or success were yours. And we know that this is, that's like trying to grab hold of the wind. There's just not enough there to grab hold of, to, to truly satisfy. But, but that's not what, what God tells us to do. The text reveals that the only thing that will truly move us, that will turn us back and, and motivate us to cry is when we look back on something that's of an immeasurable substance. Verse 2 says, the psalmist looks back upon when, God, you forgave the iniquity of your people, you covered all their sin. That which we look back upon, which we can truly grab hold of and sink our teeth into, is God's mercy. That which anchors us and inspires us is, is God's grace that is freely given to sinful people like you and me. The psalmist looks back on that mercy and it gives him the strength to cry out again for health. How are you doing at remembering God's mercy? Because it's easy to forget. 
It's really easy. One of the strangest commandments in the Bible, in my opinion, is the commandment to remember. To remember God's faithfulness, to remember God's mercy. It's strange because how do you obey a command like that? I mean, I can't make myself remember, right? But what's interesting, there's three different times in the Old Testament that God gives his people some special instructions on on how to remember. He tells them to build something. It's like a, a monument, if you will. It's called an Ebenezer. And the idea was that they were supposed to create something tangible, something that would last. And, and then when God's people came back around to that monument, days, months, even years later, the visual would jog their memory. It would help them to remember God's mercy towards them. This is one of my Ebenezer's. Um, it says, I like this one. It says, note to self. It's a, it's a journal. Um, I have a tub full of these. Um, and in here, there are records of God's faithfulness to me. Uh, I, I don't do it enough, but when I pull them out and I go back and I read, I marvel at how good God has been to me. At how faithful he has been, how merciful he's been to me year after year after year. And so I want to give you an encouragement, not a resolution, an encouragement to try to make a habit of recording God's mercy to you. Make an Ebenezer so that you can look back when you're struggling and and be reminded of God's mercy. Reminder that will, Lord willing, compel you to cry out to the Lord again. Which brings us to our third and final point this morning. The last thing that the text reveals that fuels our crying out is to look forward. Just as we are wise to look back on what God has done in the past, it's also good and right to look forward to what God is doing and about to do and going to do in the future. One of my seminary professors had a, a daughter who was really struggling in one of her classes in school, and she's a bright young lady, but she just wasn't testing well. Her, her, her brightness wasn't showing up on the school test scores. And this particular teacher kind of had a hunch that it was the testing that maybe was the problem and not comprehension. And so the teacher called the student into her office and said, hey, young lady, I'm going to let you know at the end of the year, I'm going to give you an A in this class. No matter how you perform, no matter what your test scores show, I'm going to give you an A. And it turns out that the teacher was, was spot on. After this girl received this news, she all of a sudden started performing. When the pressure was off and it didn't matter anymore, she started to do A work. What's cool about that is that when we know the outcome, especially when it's favorable, it changes the way that we engage the here and now. Verses 10 through 12, they're this beautiful poetic picture of what God is going to do, of what is going to happen in the end. Listen again as I read this Absolutely marvelous section of Scripture. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. It's a picture of what is to come. A picture of what is to come rooted in who God is. 
God's character performing this beautiful work. One commentator says that we have here the personification of the primary, primary qualities of God and his action. In these four verses, the great attributes of God meet together, love, faithfulness, righteousness, and peace. And then like conquering generals, they march side by side to a victory that is sure and the certain hope of God's people. The character of God meets and then it marches forward and and promises this sure and certain hope of what is to come. Isn't that awesome? Because of who God is, love, faithfulness, righteousness, and peace, we can trust his glorious and magnificent promises. The promise of a coming kingdom, of a guaranteed aid that motivates us to cry out to cry out from our stuckness, knowing that, that we can't unstick ourselves, but God is able and willing and desirous to turn us back to him. What a relief. That in the midst of a great mess, all we have to do is cry out to him. Brings me to my final application this morning. I want to invite each of you, those of you who are in person, those of you who are online, to join me this year by doing just that. We're going to cry out. This is not a New Year's resolution. This is a declaration of how much we need God. Need him to turn us back to himself. Need him to turn this city towards himself so that we, not just Christ Central, but all of Durham might experience the joy of salvation that is found in Christ. The practical way that we're going to do this, we've done this a number of times in the past. We're going to devote the first seven days of this year to crying out. So there's an insert in your bulletin that I want to draw your attention to. We're going to start today. Today is day one. On the front of this guide is some instructions on how to to use this guide. And on the back, there's some guides for, for each day. And it's exciting just to think about the fact of us as a community together crying out to the Lord Asking him to show up, to turn us back to him, to turn this city to himself. Love for you guys to use this both alone and in community. You can use this by yourself or also with some friends, with your city group, with neighbors. I would love for you to do that. Um, But the point is that we as a church together are embracing this posture of neediness. And my hope is that as we do this for seven days, there's a little bit of a habit that's formed. And that we carry that habit on through 2023, knowing that that apart from God, we can do nothing. But with God, all things are possible. We're going to pray and ask him to do that mighty work. I read this past week uh, a story about this text. 1653, Oliver Cromwell, he was appointed the Lord Protector of England between the execution of Charles I and and then the reestablishment of the monarchy under Charles II. So this is a really rough time in England. Lots of chaos going on. Charles, Oliver's trying to to lead and, and he's a lover of the Psalms and he stumbles upon this text. And he opens up Parliament one day with these words. He says, yesterday I did read a psalm which truly may not unbecome both me to tell you and of you to observe. He's saying, listen up. (laughs) It's the 85th Psalm. It is very instructive and significant. And although I do but a little touch upon it, I desire your perusal and pleasure. (laughs) It's beautiful. He's saying, pay attention. 
And then he goes on to expound on how these verses are an expression of his hope, his vision that by England's faithfulness to God, that righteousness might reign in England in a better, finer, happier, and more harmonious age might come. He hears that promise and he grabs hold of it. And my hope, church, is that we might do the same. That we might look to these promises of God and that they might motivate us to cry out with hope and expectancy that God will move in this place, in this time, that God will bring revival in us, in this city. He just longs for us and waits for us to cry out to him. Would you join with me in crying out, asking God to move in our lives and in this place? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you, your posture is one of leaning towards us, head bent, listening, waiting for us to acknowledge how much we need you and to cry out to you. God, we thank you that you're not waiting for us to get it right, to perform, to clean up our act. But rather, all you ask is that we acknowledge, admit that we need you. And God, you have promised that you are doing a great and magnificent work. You are bringing your kingdom to bear in this earth that all that is broken, all that is unjust will be made right again. And so, Father, we lean into that this morning. We lean into that this year. And we cry out to you, Lord, come, Lord Jesus, come to our aid, come to our help. Turn us back to you again. Turn this city back to you so that we might rejoice in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.